Hello, you're listening to Russell Brand's Under the Skin. For rights reasons, I'm going to do a little advert in the voice of... Well, I mean, it's broken down a bit now, but it was Kirsty Young for a while, wasn't it? This show is sponsored by me, Russell Brand, and my rebirth tour. Uh, the next few shows are sold out, but there's still some tickets available for Aylesbury, 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skeggy, 15th of June, and Norwich on the 19th of June. Skegness is Skeggy, just in case you didn't get that. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. If you like this show, please subscribe and give it a five-star review because it helps an algorithm, apparently. Thank you very much. Thank you. Listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Raul Martinez is a philosopher, artist, and award-winning filmmaker. His first book, Creating Freedom, was informed by over a decade of research and is accompanied by a documentary series. Episode one, The Lottery of Birth, was nominated for Best Documentary at London's Rain Dance Film Festival and went on to win the Activist Spirit Award in 2012. Hello, Raul. Hey, Russell. Good to be here. Good, good. I'm glad you're here. Francesca Martinez is also is Raul's sister for a start and is a stand-up uh, comedian, writer, and actor. Performs sell-out shows all around the world has written a book and well i know you don't i've known you for a while yes we have we go back a long way thanks for coming on francesca also with me for i mean this is the on this on this uh, show on this episode of under the skin we're focusing primarily on raul martinez and his book creating freedom and some of the ideas some of the anti-capitalist ideas that are in that book some of the spiritual ideas some of the psychological ideas in this book with me is my uh, academic crush, new friend, and excitingly bes- uh, endowed with a—I'd call it a glamorous cardigan. It's Dr. Brad Evans, philosopher and friend. Hello, Brad. Great to be back. It's lovely to have you here. I'm uh, hoping to cultivate a kind of—I uh, mean, sort of a double act with you. Perhaps we'll start doing live work, will we? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Keep on microphone, Brad. Get right on it. We talked about this at length with all of you. You all claimed you were going to be professional, and so far, only Francesca has been. And <laughs> I'm wobbly, so it's harder for me. Francesca is, is a self-identified wobbly person, so she's facing additional challenges and is still managing to be professional. And they put me on the wheelie chair. Thanks, guys. Francesca does have more, uh, to use a medical term, cerebral palsy, <laughs> and is on a wobbly chair, and is still managing to be more professional than Raoul, her own brother. And uh, I mean, oh, yeah, well, we don't even know if Brad is a philosopher. I'm taking him at his word. For as full I know, he's just a Welshman that's wandered out of a mine and into a studio and is trying to undo a perfectly good society. Raul Martinez, I've read your book as much as I ever can. I've provided a quote for your book. Yeah, cheers for that. Yeah, that's the kind of person. And a tweet. You've tweeted about it twice. I've tweeted twice about your book and now I'm promoting it in podcast form. What is it that's important about this book? What is the message you're trying to convey? It's trying to convey that in our society we have a bunch of myths about freedom, I think, which largely function to conceal the true nature of us, of our society and the way power is distributed. Um, like The first myth that I talk about is a myth of responsibility. And this goes really de- back to the idea that... Um, basically the lottery of birth, that we don't choose the circumstances of our birth, we don't choose how we look, we don't choose our parents, our, our gene- genetic inheritance. Um, by the time we have the like intellectual capacity to question our identity, we've already inherited one, a set of beliefs, values, a worldview. Um, and so you're sort of challenging the idea of individual responsibility. For example, me, uh, a, a, a drug addict, a recovering drug addict now, uh, has committed like com- criminal behaviour in the past. You would say, oh, that's not your fault. You didn't ask to be born a drug addict. Yeah, not ultimately. A- Basically, if anyone had had your genes and your particular environmental influences they would have ended up having your brain and making your choices. They would be you. So it's not that we don't make choices. Of course, every human being makes choices all all the time. But we make choices with a brain that we didn't choose and circumstances not of our own making. 
Um, so what does that mean, that argument? If we're not individually responsible, are you saying that one of the myths of our time, one of the myths that you're debunking, is that we are individually culpable for our circumstance? For If you're poor, you, it's because you've made the wrong choices. If you're in prison, yeah. it's your bloody fault. So you're countering that argument. Well, this is it. I think this myth actually functions as a really powerful way to legitimise um, the current distribution of wealth and power. It really lies at the heart of, I think, right-wing ideology. Mm. If you can point to poor people and say it's your fault, if you can point to the rich and the billionaires and say, wow, look at them, they're incredible and they deserve everything they have, um, then it really makes it much harder to argue against and fight against the system as it is. Um, so I think exposing the myth actually is a uh, gives a powerful tool to those fighting for a fairer society and, uh, you know, better so distribution of wealth. You're challenging the idea, the all-pervasive idea, an idea so ubiquitous, present everywhere, the idea of individual merit. And you're saying it's so all-pervasive that we don't even question it. We think, oh, well, it's all right for the people of that, on that side of the street to live in those houses, and it's all right for the people. Like, So I suppose on, a, on an anecdotal level, on some level, when I go in my nice car, drive past a homeless person, I have to, on some level, think, it's OK that that guy's homeless and I'm in this car because otherwise I might have to start challenging the roots of society and the structure of society. Right, yeah. So I think it's a myth that gets, it's just been transferred from generation to generation. But when you actually scrutinise it, just look at the science, for example. There's not a single shred of scientific evidence that actually supports the myth. And in recent years, we've had finding after finding in neuroscience, which undermines this idea that we are truly responsible. Um, we've had like the greatest thinkers in history, from uh, Albert Einstein to Charles Darwin, who have, you know, exposed a myth, um, although a few people know about that. Um, and a growing number today of physicists, psychologists, neuroscientists who are challenging it. But it still lies right at the heart of our society. Um, and its consequences, I think, when you begin to challenge it, the consequences for our criminal justice system, for our political system, our democracy, are profound. Um, lots of things begin to unravel. I understand what you're saying. It's almost like that we should have a therapeutic model as opposed to a punitive <laughs> model. Like a person's the way they are for a reason and you should treat it as something that can be resolved rather than right you bastard you've done this thing throw away the key Right, yeah. I think it's trying to understand that behaviour is a function of circumstances the circumstance of someone's brain at a particular point in time but the nature of someone's brain at a particular point in time is dependent on forces which they don't control. So if you want to change behaviour, if you want to kind of have less bad behaviour in society, that you know behaviour we regard as bad, and more, let's say, pro-social behaviour in society, then you want to understand the roots of that kind of behaviour. It's yes. no good just like getting the cordon of responsibility and tying it tightly around the individual. That just disempowers us as a society oh. from creating the conditions that produces the behaviour we want. It either disempowers us or it absolves us, depending on your position. What did you say? Wrap people up with a cordon of responsibility? Yeah, that, I, like that I think image. that's what our society does. It wraps it tightly around the individual. You know, all the people in jail say they're just bad people, it's their fault. Mm. Um, and that just blinds us to the deeper causal reasons for behaviour and for um, the roots of why people are the way they are. And, and, it's, and it's not just about the way the brain is, it's about the opportunities we have. It's no good comparing, you know, the opportunities of a billionaire and the opportunities of someone who grows up with, uh, you know, parents in jail, um, uh, deprived, who hasn't had uh, proper care, attention and material resources. Mm. Um, they just live in different universes and to kind of apply the same mm. uh, moral judgments uh, is just to, you know, ignore context in, yes. in, in, in an extreme fashion. And in a way, the the boy-done-good myth is used to further substantiate the idea of when people do come out of on the rare occasions, when people do make it out of uh, ghettoized or difficult communities, that's used as see? They did it, so why don't you? It's your bloody fault. Now, um, Brad Evans, you know, I, I'm sure in the vast realm of your academic knowledge, there must be uh, much within Rao's work that chimes with you. You read his book yesterday today. <laughs> Tell us what you think about it all. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, the, the book does a really great job of making a lot of complex ideas very accessible. And I, you know, uh, one of the credits of the book actually is I, I really like the way you draw upon a great deal of transdisciplinary, what we might call engagements from neuroscience to philosophy to juridical thinking. And, and it's a really What's good that last bit juridical thinking, which is legal thinking, effectively, and offers something really meaningful in terms of bringing all these ideas together, as you say, to kind of shatter the myth around the ways in which if society is doing well, 
well, then the system's working great. If people fall through the cracks, then it's just individual responsibility. Now, you, you mentioned almost like this therapeutic kind of governance. That really is also at work within a neoliberal or capitalist society which you're kind of dealing with, the way in which it kind of pathologizes individuals as being somehow deviant or responsible for their own failures and their own inabilities to live up to the, the society's standards. Now, the one thing which I also think, so there's there's that side of, the, of the, the book which I think is really great in terms of saying, look, if we want to deal with social problems, let's have a proper ecological framing. Let's look at the ways in which the lived conditions in which people grow up in. You know, the, 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 the term Life as a lottery, it clearly is a lottery. I grew up in the working class communities of South Wales and the, the number of kids I saw, you know, perfectly able, brilliant kids just fall through the cracks because of the lack of, you know, just the chances and the odds were stacked against them. So in that sense, it's all about, as, you, as your book highlights, it's all about regimes of power. Who has the capacity really to make a change? And the other thing then which I think, you know, it might be worth pursuing two other areas is one around this question of freedom. You know, all societies say they promote freedom. Now, but what does freedom actually mean in practice? Well, it's the capacity to enhance your life's experiences. It's to open the realm of possibilities around what you can actually do with your life. If you're constrained because of whatever, you know, in terms of regimes of power, that will necessarily work against you, again, as your book highlights. And the other question, which I think also connects into the work that Francesca does then, is the way in which all this becomes normalised. The, and the, and the, you know, the, the true definition of, norm, of normalisation is, is forced conformity, but also the way in which normalisation works is to hide things in plain sight from us. It's very difficult to critique a norm, actually. Mm. And I think what your book is really trying to do in a really interesting way is actually to try to get to the heart of the power invested in the normalisation of people's successes and failures such that it just looks like a natural process rather mm. than the outcome, as you say, of a life lottery. And life shouldn't be a lottery. Oh, he's good, isn't he? That's Brad Evans there. He's earned that doctorhood, <laughs> or whatever, doctorship or whatever it is. What do you think, Francesca? Yeah, I think this ideology that we are responsible for our own um, circumstances is really behind the current politics of hate. So we're seeing a real demonisation of poor people. So being poor is now a crime. Um, And disabled people, if we look at recent years, we can see the attacks on disabled people in this country have been absolutely appalling. Really? What do you mean? Well, I mean, they face more cuts than any other group in society. Um, The way they've been treated is like they're being punished for needing extra help. And we're always told that the reason for these cuts are austerity and money saving. But when you actually look at the cuts, Um, they're actually costing money because they're taking away people's ability to work, to contribute, to live independent lives. And I think we've got to question the real aims behind these cuts because they're not about saving money, which they're not. Then what are they about? And I think they're about trying to create a society where there is no compassion or social responsibility or support network, basically America. And I think the way we treat people with disabilities really reflects the true values of our system. So I think it's very, very important to realise that the politics that Rally is talking about, um, they are really being used to essentially free the state and the powerful from feeling any kind of responsibility to groups who genuinely need it. And I, just I myself, I've met so many people who have friends and family who have committed suicide from these benefit cuts. And I also haven't met a single disabled people person who's ever wanted to live a life without work or 
um, to contribute in a valuable way. And I think the idea that there are millions of people who want to live at home and live off the state and just are very thankful that they're disabled, mm. I think that is a really disgusting and corrosive idea. And frankly, this ideology um, is, I think, at the root of so many human rights abuses and injustices. So I'm really proud and happy that that Rao has kind of put a spotlight on on the myth of um, freedom and responsibility. Thank you. I think uh, Francesca articulated brilliantly how um, these kind of punitive, this punitive attitude and the idea of individual meritocracy and how it can lead to punishment, seclusion, uh, and uh, what is it called? Necropolitics, who it's all right to kill, who it's all right to damn, who it's all right to condemn. Uh, like, I think that, was, uh, that helped me to understand it really clearly. Thanks, Francesca. But what, what other examples are there, uh, Raoul, like, like the penal system and the way that prisons are funded and the way that prisons function? Is that another area that's interesting? regard this point? Yeah, I think it has huge implications for the criminal justice system, the way we think about responsibility and freedom. Um, the, the, the kind of the dominant justification in our culture for punishment is retribution. The idea that if someone does something bad, then it's an end in itself to make them suffer. Mm. Um, but of course, if we expose a myth of responsibility, then just uh, then retribution as a justification for punishment no longer works. So we have to get rid of that. I just think there's no uh, there's no place at all for retribution. Um, so then you say, well, what kind of? I suppose people just to put like a, out of the four of us. Oddly, it falls upon me to be the person that speaks on behalf of. Uh, it's a fictional person, and they've had something wrong happen to them. Like yeah. so, it's like like hold on a minute. If someone's like harmed my family or whatever, yeah. then surely that person must be punished. Like the vengeance must be visited, condemnation, damnation. Do you think it's sort of an antiquated religious idea that has no sort of function? Because the alternative, I suppose, I've heard people that have suffered incredible, like have suffered incredibly, and have found that forgiveness is the like the only answer. They've only found freedom through forgiveness. But I suppose we have to talk. Like when you say there is no individual culpability for people's actions that's a big statement particularly yeah. and it's a particular it's a big shift to ask people to go oh yeah, yeah no it weren't his fault he murdered my granddaughter or whatever it was yeah yeah um no w- well what you find is that there are powerful evolutionary reasons why we have this strike back response mm-hmm. um that if we are harmed or someone we care about is harmed um we really have a strong desire for that person to suffer. And yeah, so there are interesting explanations for why that's the case. But that alone isn't a justification. We have to think coolly and carefully about... You can't build a society on that impulse. No, which is why, you know, even now in our criminal justice system, we don't let those who have suffered um, dole out sentences to criminals. That's done by, you know, a supposedly impartial judge who hasn't themselves suffered because it's harder to um, be objective otherwise. But so, yeah, everyone, you, me, I think everyone feels this desire to hit out at those who do bad things. You know, all the time we're talking about politics, I think every day of the year, it's hard not to kind of bang your head against the wall with the degree of injustice and the lies and hypocrisy. But I think what's essential is just to remember that, yeah, in the end, you know, had I had the genes of Theresa May, had I had her life experiences and conditioning, I'd be implementing austerity. I'd be lying to the public as she's been lying. Um, So it's just this sense of to try and take a step back and say... It's very easy to blame. It's a very powerful response. But it's very easy, but it's not particularly enlightening. It doesn't empower us to change society. I think it disempowers us. Um, so with regard to the criminal justice system, I think we have to get rid of, if you want to think intellectually and scientifically about behaviour and crime and punishment, we have to get rid of retribution. But that doesn't mean we get rid of um, prisons or punishment completely. There are other justifications. I think we're left with um, punishment for to deter, um, rehabilitation to heal, and incarceration to protect. Um, and I think it's worth saying something about deterrence because this is the other justification. Once you get rid of retribution, people are like, okay. Retribution? I'm off on a murder spree. Yeah. (laughs) Then people are like, well, okay, but we still need punishment to deter. If we had no punishment, there'd be, you know, people would just do terrible things all the time. And there's some truth to that. But I think people vastly overstate and often misunderstand the, the power of deterrence. So the first thing is that more severe punishments, we all assume that more severe punishments are going to function as more effective deterrence. Mm. And this just isn't true. There are lots 
lots of examples where more severe punishments, for example, like a death penalty is introduced into a state or a country and the violent crime rate actually goes up instead of down, which, which is what you'd expect. Um, and just even within our current system, the, the rate of reoffending uh, is something like 65 to 70%, let's say in the US and the UK. Now, we have very harsh punishments in our society, and, but it's clearly failing to deter the actual people who are committing the crimes from reoffending. Um, so then the argument goes that, well, we still want to punish them to prevent the rest of the law-abiding population from committing a similar crime. And the, there's some truth to that. But actually, just on a mo- kind of just morally, if we look at it, what we're actually saying is we're harming an individual who's not truly responsible for the betterment of the whole of society. Now, as just a quick thought experiment, imagine that someone, um, a healthy person, walks into hospital and there are five people who each need an organ transplant. And if you killed this one person, you could save the lives of five other people. Now, on balance, you're going to maximise welfare, probably, by killing the one individual. Who is he and what's he like? We know nothing about him. I don't like the sound of him. What's he doing in that hospital? He sounds a bit shifty. He's just wandering in the hospital, big belly full of organs. (laughs) I say out with the scalpel, out with the kidneys, out with the lungs. Save five people. There's your five a day. Just for one person who could have been a paedophile. Through choice. I've read your book. I was picturing you, Russell. You, you're the guy in the hospital, mate. Wait a second. <laughs> Hold on, I'm the bloke that's walked in. You're the guy that walked in, yeah. A kind man going into a hospital to help <laughs> others less fortunate. And how do you repay him? By ripping out his pancreas, you <laughs> bastard. Go on, finish your uh, My analogy. sentiments, exactly, mate. So, um, but most people would, of course, say, look, we can't do that. It'd be terribly, it'd be an awful abuse of, of this guy's uh, individual freedoms, his human rights, to just kill him. And it's the same argument, really, with the criminal justice system. Even if it were true that doing terrible things to an individual who's done something bad might have, uh, uh, on balance, a slightly positive impact on the welfare of the whole of society. I get the argument. I get that. I get that. So, okay, okay. so what's been exposed, uh, what we're talking about, really, is the idea of individualism, materialism and merit. Now, Brad, you've read a book or six. You've written a paper or two. You swagger about in robes and a mortarboard. What, What is being masked by this myth of merit? Why is this the system? Why has this happened? Why is this the world that we're living in? And this exclusion of compassion that's already been mentioned. Why is that happening? What is its role? Tell us as a philosopher or hand in your card at once. Well, well, I think, you know, precisely what's being masked is unequal relations of power Mm -hmm. and the ability to carve up the world in conditions of have and have nots and to actually normalise it and justify it by playing to a great deal of scientific theory, underwritten by a great deal of actually serious political and philosophical mediation of those who get appropriated by power and lend their voices to these kind of narratives. And of course, you know, trumped up by the odd internet troll and bigot and so forth, which lends further justification to this. Now, I think, you know, your, your point about um, and linking it to your example about, OK, what happens if somebody kills one of your relatives? Surely you want this biblical conception of justice to work. You know, and it's interesting you pointed to the you know, United States of America. If you look in terms of the the U- U.S. penitentiary system in, in New York State alone, it costs more money to put somebody through the penitentiary system than give them a full-funded scholarship to Columbia University. Bloody hell. Now, if, if I was in the position where somebody in my family had been wronged, I would much prefer to see somebody go through an educational system such as Columbia University than actually be put in five years in prison or maybe ten years or even rot there indefinitely and have no sense of human dignity. And the one thing which the prison system does, and all these systems do in terms of the wider, you know, linking it back to Francesca's earlier point about human rights, is what it also does is it actually strips away simple ideas of compassion and decency. But but there's a much more substantive question then, because what that really does is it strips a person of their dignity. And if you strip a person of their dignity, you strip them of political agency. And then if you strip them of political agency, you deny them a voice, a credible voice in any meaningful society. Which is why, back to Raoul's point, what we need is a different understanding of justice, a different understanding of power, something much more empathetic and much more engaged with, you know, what Francesca might call, you know, how can we liberate differences in a much more meaningful way around this? We've talked what, about the, oh, sorry, Karen. What really struck me about this uh, chapter on punishment, just quickly, is that um, our system is so irrational. So in America, Raoul talks about a time when they introduced um, degrees for graduates, yeah, education uh, programs. Yeah. And I mean, the outcomes were astounding. What were they? Well, there are various programs, but the, the basic trend is that, well, in one prison, I think uh, violent, well, reoffending was reduced to zero. 
for the prisoners who went through the program. Yeah. Violence within the jail was reduced to zero. Mm. Um, zero, actually zero. Everyone witnessed just in terms of like violence. serious violence. Yeah. So in a rational system, you think a state would look at that and go, "That's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Shall we carry on with that?" But what happened is they scrapped that scheme because they didn't want people going to prison to gain a free university education. So I think that's a really great example of how our system likes to be perceived as rational and practical, but actually it's based on really big prejudices and it actually has quite dubious agendas at at its heart. Yes, it's curiously atavistic actually. It's masked by rationalism and intellectualism, but there is the, as you clearly, uh, or that example demonstrates, it's clearly masking a different type of, you know, mendacious agenda. Brad, you're a real expert in violence. We're uh, we're on the precipice of a, I don't mean like he's a karate expert or a thug or anything. I was a black belt in karate, actually. Oh, you bastard. (laughs) On top of everything else. I'm not having that. So was I. No, you are. Okay, it's getting silly now. People are taking a piss, right? Get out. I'm trying to to do a podcast here. This is a bloody podcast. We're trying to change the world. One brain at a time. So, like... um, (laughs) Like the role of uh, we're on the precipice of this interesting election where for the you know where the first time there is explicitly uh, talk of redistribution of wealth, scrapping of tuition fees versus as in you, uh, Raoul, brilliantly used Theresa May as an example of how yourself you might use compassion, like you know, like compassion towards Theresa May, love of Theresa. You know, she lost both her parents. She's a spiritual woman. The suffering of not having children, her, like her own her own declaration in. in a, 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 I don't know an interview with the Daily Mail. That's where I go to get my compassion. So, like, um, so what is it like? On the, how do these ideas become relevant in a political framework at this particular time? When what we're to, where Francesca is saying that the lack of compassion and, and presence of cruelty is being masqueraded as a kind of rationalism, where Raoul is saying, demonst- like, demonstrably, the myth of individual culpability is uh, fragile and it's being used to, to create scenarios where certain people can flourish while others are penalised. How do you think that at this time that's relevant? in the context of this forthcoming election, mate? Mm-hmm. Um, well, f- first of all, you can look in terms of the terms of engagement and you use the terms, you know, violence or cruelty. They don't enter into the so-called mainstream discussion whatsoever, yeah. right? So we don't talk about poverty in terms of cruelty or we don't talk about violence in those terms. We don't talk about, for instance, the person who is, ends up in, on the streets of, of London as being subject to a particular regime of violence, mm. right? But, and Although we know the condition of somebody living on the streets is deeply precarious, but also the conditions which give rise to them being there in the first place. And I think one of the things which is very absent from the contemporary debates, particularly in the context of this election... Is is the very types of language which really impress the political stakes of this? Corbyn's trying to do this in a, in, in his own unique way of kind of saying, "Well, look, you know, if you live in these conditions, then it is an assault on dignity." Now, you know, I grew up again, you know, in in a, in a family which um, from from the moment I was born, my dad had permanent disabilities, so I grew up in a disability benefit household, and I knew from that experience that. What we mean by violence can take many different forms. It doesn't have to be physical abuse. And actually, by far the worst conditions of violence are psychological assaults on a daily basis, constant indignity, the sense that you are kind of on the one hand, you know, for my father was completely incapable of working, but there was a constant attack during Thatcherism and so on around, actually, you're just a sponge of the state. That's not just simply political rhetoric. That is an assault on a person's dignity. And if we take this language seriously, you know, what we do need to do then, so you look at the contemporary moment, you know, the Conservative manifesto, on the one hand, it's quite clearly a manifesto which is an assault on the dignity of the poor people. And yet, on the other hand, of course, we can have the return to fox hunting and, as the manifesto now says, we're going to remove the tariffs on ivory trade, right? So there's a clear yeah, violence in there. That to affect me, that. Those tariffs are quite unreasonable and I, I do want to get my ivory at a price that's right. Competitively priced ivory available now. So, yeah, that, that does seem like a manifesto that's somewhat detached from the experience of ordinary people if it's sort of like pro fox mm. hunting pro ivory trade and anti poor people which probably a significant percentage of the population under current conditions could be defined as poor but we've talked before about like the sort of simply what we're experiencing is that and i like your psychological approach in your book mate because because like that 
it seems like what's been being exempted or not and excluded, removed from the political conversation, or at least from governance, is compassion and kindness and words that are, I suppose seem like they're more applicable in a psychological context as opposed to a political one that we're living like what kind of a people are we becoming that we sort of electing governments that don't like us electing people that hate us a kind of self sort of loathing sadomasochistic governance by sort of dominatrixes in wonderful shoes that deplore us what's going on what are we going to do who well, should we vote for <laughs> <laughs> um Following on from this idea about that we don't create ourselves with a product of forces, uh, you know, beyond our, our, our own control, um, the question arises, well, if we don't create ourselves, who does create us? What does create us? And what you become aware of is the huge opportunity to control identities, to manipulate identities, to shape identities. And what you see across society and across time, across history, is there's a tendency for those with the power to do the shaping, to shape identities in ways which are going to um, benefit their interests. So, you know, it's very convenient for monarch monarchs in the past to um, spread the idea of the divine right of king. Mm. Um, are you just saying that because you are a king? <laughs> no, it's a really good idea, the divine right of a king. Right, exactly. And we see this manifesting in so many ways. Um, I think in recent years, in the era of neoliberalism, one of the most important ways this has manifested itself is trying to conflate in people's minds freedom with the free market. Well, yeah, they've done that really well. Explain more about that. Well, so let, let's take one of the leading economists of the 20th century, take Milton Friedman. He said that um, even if some economic system was less efficient than capitalism, he would still favour it due to its unique capacity to deliver the freedom to choose. And he argued this by saying that the market is characterised by voluntary, mutually beneficial transactions, which all sounds very good. It's sounds you know, lo lots of liberty. Who wouldn't like a voluntary, mutually beneficial transaction? So that's harmless fun. I can't even say that. <laughs> but the well thing done. is, sorry, the thing is, um, it sounds good until you scrutinise it. So I would say, all right, imagine walking down the street and someone puts a gun to your head. Yeah. And says to you, you know, I'm, I'm going to shoot you in the head if oh. you don't give me all your money. Okay. Um, well, if you give that person your money, that's a mutually beneficial transaction. Because you I get didn't to, get shot in the head. Yeah, you yeah. get to keep your life and they get to keep your money. You both get something from the transaction. Was it voluntary? Well, no, people say, of course not. You've got a gun to your head, right? Mm -hmm. But then every day of the year in the market, people have a metaphorical gun to the head in the form of human need. The need to feed their children, the need to pay their rent, the need to care for elderly relatives. Um, this all functions as... Coercion. You can't have any coercion. So what you see is that within a market, freedom expands and contracts with spending power. Um, and that's just a commonly denied you know, it expands factory. and contracts with spending power, does the old freedom. Yeah. Like a sphincter of freedom gripping you nervously, not finishing the job off. I tell you what, I like that gun of need that's being held to a head. Now, listen, I'm going to warn you free about this. We've invited uh, Spectator and I think Financial Times and those kind of things, journalist uh, Hugo Rifkin to come on the show. Now, he's, he's, not there, he's not there yet, so don't get too excited. But this is what I want to say is, right, like, you know what we're like? Like I'm a bit of a hippie, former drug person. I'm into transcendent realms of spiritual love and unity of all consciousness and interconnectivity. You can't trust me. Brad, look at him. He's already admitted he's from Wales. Raul and Francesca, your surname is not English. So how can we trust a single... Martinez. How can you trust a single one of us to come up with a coherent, rational argument for building a decent and fair society. And also, we do have a tendency, people that are, I don't know, let's call it on the left, although perhaps even those kind of definitions and determinants need to be analysed at this time with the world changing so rapidly. But what we've done is we've got a bloke coming on. He's called uh, Hugo Rifkind. Now, Hugo Rifkind, he writes out of The Spectator. So wouldn't it be good? I want to hear what... Because when you say stuff like that, it's like we need a more compassionate society. When they give people in Nick chance to do a degree, they improve. I think, yep, I've been inside prisons as a visitor only ever. And it, and, and it clearly makes sense to me that if you're compassionate towards people, then you have a chance of change. And all the things you said, Francesca, about like, you know, people shouldn't be penalised, persecuted and damned for a disability. And when you say, Brad, that, that, that there's an inherent violence in poverty and in homelessness, I listen to this stuff and I'm, I'm frantically nodding to the point of orgasm. So I, I, and I sort of think, how can anybody go, 
No, what you want is Theresa May. Right, so like, so that's why we need... I, I need to speak to someone who can explain to me the value of conservatism, the value of free markets. I want to... Actually, I'm fascinated because I can't even imagine what they're going to bloody say. I looked at that Milton Friedman on a video and, like, I nearly went full Ike. I thought, that guy's reptile. You know, like, I almost sort of thought, this is a, someone from another dimension. This is proper full-on Illuminati stuff. So we're going to have Hugo Rifkind on and we'll ask him, what is it that you think is the value of sort of conservatism or like a, this is this idea of individual freedom? Have you lot got ideas for questions? Because I've not rehearsed it yet. Well, I'd like to ask someone who supports this current system, how can you? Because it's destroying the conditions for life that we all depend on. It's anti-life. It's increasing inequality. And scientists say we have 10 years to radically move away from a growth-obsessed culture to something more sustainable if we want to uh, survive as a human species. So I just think it's morally unjustifiable and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it isn't backed up by science. That's a good question. I'm going to ask that, but I'm going to pretend I thought of it, all right? Yeah, we'll pretend you did. Yeah. Uh, listen, I've just been thinking it doesn't sustain the, it doesn't sustain the conditions for life. Rao, what, what, uh, what kind of questions will you have? I'd second what Chester's saying. I mean, the environmental issue. Focus on the environment. Because the conservatives, I thought they liked the environment. They want to conserve it. Their logo's a tree. They would to frack the entire country. Oh, I think, I think the name conservative is just misleading now. Right. They're, they're not, not conservatives. They're extremists. They're extremists. Well, I like to talk about the centre ground. I mean, if you look recently, since Brexit and Trump, we've had people, ex-prime uh, ministers like um, Tony Blair and John Major, saying we need to return to the solid centre. Uh-huh. And... What I like to say is that the centre ground, where most of us feel most comfortable, is not where extremes are avoided, it's where they're normalised. That a centre ground within any particular society is just a product of power relations, it's a social construct, and it shifts according to where you are um, in terms of geography, in terms of history. So, for example, Corbyn in Scandinavia would be regarded as just, you know... Uh, a fairly regular social democrat, mainstream social democrat. Here's Jeremy Corbyn, give him a jumper. Yeah, nothing particularly unusual. Um, in this country, this crazy lefty, uh, you know, according uh, to the mainstream press. You're quite right. The centre is a conceptual idea. There is no actual centre in limitless space or the limitless space of actual space or of consciousness. I, I think it backs up what Brad was saying about what's normalised. Yeah, normal, yeah, normative terms. Does it, Brad? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and also, I think, you know, one of the things... We, we really need to press and nobody presses the government on actually is we're living in an age where all these different governments on the right are claiming some retreat back to sovereign integrity and reclaiming sovereignty whatever that means now on the you know you can say part of this one of the questions we can ask is can you name one piece of legislation that any of these right-wing governments do which reigns in the powers of global capitalism because because yes. that is you know, if we're talking about sovereignty and the, the the ability to take freedom seriously, even on the economic level, like people yeah. like Friedman talk about, then yeah. sovereignty is about power. Power is about wealth. Mm. So, what is one piece of legislation that's dealing with this? And then beyond well, that's that, good. That's really good, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And, and then beyond that, it ra- it raises a fundamental question again. You know about. Why is it then they depend upon the politics of fear so much? And as the famous philosopher Spinoza says, you know, how do the masses learn to desire their oppression as though it was their liberation? How have we learned that? Is it the role of the media? What's going on, Brad? How are we starting to desire our own oppression? It's an ideological project which has a great deal of formidable intellectualism, which goes back to Hayek, to Friedman, and and it's deeply invested in all the apparatus, the cultural apparatus of a, of a social order, which normalises and naturalises this thing. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to actually ask about the media. How can you have a functioning democracy when you have a media which is largely owned by a handful of billionaires? It's just completely nuts. It goes, you know, unnoticed because the media don't really want to put the spotlight on themselves. Mm. But how can you possibly have um, 
you know, a free and open discussion about what's going on in society when there's such a clear bias at, at, at the heart of it. I like that. And study after study, um, and we're talking over a period of decades, uh, by universities have just shown this bias. I mean, it's not a matter of opinion anymore, the bias of the media. And this includes the BBC as well as kind of like the Murdoch press. Um, so for me, the media is probably the largest, most powerful weapon that the establishment, the wealthy, that international capital has at its disposal to create the illusion of freedom while maintaining the system, create the illusion, maintain the illusion of democracy, let's say, while actually maintaining complete control over the system and actually allowing inequality to increase each year. I like that. In that uh, analogy you use, or allegory, I never know, that you used before, like uh, about the gun of need held to the head, the role of the media is to tell you that it's not a gun, like maybe it's a hair dryer or something like that, or it's some hair tongs. That's not a gun, don't worry about that. So the, 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 the gun is never sort of revealed. We never fully recognise that this is a system that puts us on the back foot, that keeps us in fear. All right, that's good. I think we've got some stuff like to talk about. So when that conversation happens, but I'm primarily going to focus on being really compassionate and nice. So you guys watch me and see if I seem Christ-like. That's one of the things that I want to talk about. May I just ask on a personal note, who's oldest out of you two Martinez's? Oh, you're lovely. I'm, <laughs> I'm five years older. You're five years. This is your little brother. But he's more mature than me. Right. Yeah. Apparently. So have you? Do you do a lot of stuff together? I mean, it's really weird. Like our careers have been so different. So I go on stage and tell jokes like you, and Raoul writes amazing, mind-blowing books, and he also uh, paints amazing portraits. But I would say ultimately, our work. Um, communicate similar messages. Like, I think one of the prime messages of Ralph's book is um, the importance of critical thinking. And just going back to what you're saying about why do people vote the way they do, I think we've got to look at culture, stuff like religion and education really engender a real devotion to authority and the respect to authority and, you know, um, obedience and you shouldn't question and, you know, don't pipe up. Do you personally feel that? You feel like that you're educated, you're English people? Well, we had quite a unique upbringing. Like, we didn't have a TV for a start. And I always joke with Ralph that we were so bored. And when you're bored, you, you become more creative and you start mm. to think more. And our parents were lovely and amazing and they always said to us the most important thing is to question everything mm. and I think we've really both um, taken that to heart yes. um, in our lives and kind of run with it although my book has more jokes in their mouth she's funny that's true are you both explicitly Labour supporters that sort of are campaigning for Labour in the forthcoming election is that this time at? round yeah because you think, why? Why? Because I think we have to understand the Labour Party, there's always been two factions within the Labour Party. It's kind of two parties um, crammed into one. Um, one faction has had a much deeper critique of society and sees a need for more fundamental change. And the other just wants to curb the worst excesses of the system, but right. basically endorses the system. And I think for most of my lifetime, that faction, the more establishment faction, has won out. And so although Labour has always been better than the Tories, it's only been by a little bit. Yeah. And this is the first time that I think actually we have, I mean, it's quite ironic that people say um, we haven't had a strong opposition. It's the first time actually Labour has um, functioned as a genuine opposition right. to the Tories because they're offering a genuine alternative. The political spectrum has been blown open this election since Corbyn's election uh, as a leader of the Labour Party. And so, yeah, it's something worth getting behind. It's something worth supporting and fighting. And of course, he's torn apart by the press. Um, and actually, of course, he's torn apart by some within his own party, because what we're actually observing is a struggle for the soul of the Labour Party. What is a Labour Party going to be? Is it going to be a vehicle for the working class, for progressive politics, for um, an economy that isn't going to destroy the conditions for a, a life on earth? Or is it going to be kind of business as usual, centre ground with, you know, tinkering at the edges? Um, you know, whatever the outcome of this election I think we have to look at things in those contexts, uh, in that context, and continue to fight for Labour to be as this progressive vehicle. Um, it's hugely important. And I'll be campaigning for the last two years for Corbyn. Um, 
one point, really important reason that I'm behind it is because I think a lot of the reason that we're in such a mess as a global community is because we value the wrong human qualities and we elevate the wrong people into power. So if you look at our system, it's often the most cutthroat, devious, clever, egotistical, power-hungry folk that get there. They want it and they pursue it. And you know what? Those people shouldn't be in power. They shouldn't be letting anywhere near it. Exactly. But the Yet. people who actually, like Corbyn, dedicate their life to speaking up for the voiceless, the powerless, going out campaigning for peace, equality, justice. Just a quick personal story, you know, I've done a lot of work on austerity and um, we've done meetings around the country. Who was there, you know, week in, week out? Jerry Corbyn in his spare time in the evenings, in the week on the weekends, he's there speaking up for those who need it. Mm-hmm. This is a man who's dedicated his life to fighting for human rights. It's the kind of um, human quality, I think, that we really want to recognise as valuable. And so I would like to propose that we need to really um, transform um, the kind of people that we put in power. Mm. So almost like those who really want it aren't allowed. And instead we go into communities and look for those people that are dedicating their lives to the communities Mm. and say, come on, mate, we know you don't want it, but you're the perfect candidate because you actually um, care about principles rather than power and ego. It's an interesting, yes, that's a really good point, you know, that like through what lens do we view potential leaders that the conclusions we come up with are always these peculiar kind of monoliths of potential of cruelty and narcissism and ego and that the idea that, that, that leadership in the past or one hears one quasi imagines was about service that to be in a position of authority and power meant that you serve your community that you are at the behest of a community uh, brad evans tell us a little bit about how you imagine we've come to deify rarefy and elevate a particular Per type of personality and to create a particular model of leadership is this a modern phenomena can we imagine that like you know is it because we come from a is it because leadership and the the military are sort of embedded ideas what would what would Foucault say what would Derrida say what would you say why do we look for these leaders why do we regard compassion and kindness as kind of drippy bullshit mm-hmm. Well, I think you know there's there's a there's evidently a great deal of of a theological hangover, but there's certainly in terms of you know for Foucault, we'd say alongside the modern diagram for power, there was a military diagram for power, and that military t- diagram for power ties politics or weds politics to questions of order and security, and that in itself can very much hierarchicalize certain modes of thinking and certain modes of how we understand the logics of government. Now, in the Western political imagination, there is certain this clear penchant for deification, this idea that we put certain thinkers or leaders or whatever else on a pedestal. And often, as Francesca points out, it's often the very wrong people. And there's that saying, you know, that the people often get the leaders they deserve. Well, if that's the case, then we're nothing much more than amoeba. Because I think the, the, way, the way in which we the society operates and the types of people who actually rise to the top are precisely those who are seduced by power. And there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who is seduced by power. So what can we do to change that? And, and I think, you know, I agree with Raul. There's the big you know, issue that we've had historically, certainly within the Labour Party, has been the fundamental intellectual division within that party, because there's one element of that party, which also plays into this deification model, which ends up eventually taking you to Tony Blair, right? So you have these kind of media savvy, people who look good on television, can play to that kind of what Theodore Adorno called the authoritarian personality, but can do it in a very nice, meaningful, you know, seductive way. And yet on the other side, there's an element to the Labour Party historically 
historically, which has been deeply bound up with the question of what does it mean to produce critically-minded people who can actually make a very positive contribution to society. Now, one of the failures of the of certainly of modern politics over the last 15, 20 years has been its lack of imagination. And this is actually why I like actually the term creating freedom, right? The, the capitalist dogmatic idea of freedom is freedom produced and freedom consumed. What we need actually is a different understanding of freedom in itself, which is creative, which is affirmative, which doesn't position itself in these great big hierarchies and leaders. It's, you know, and I think that is in itself where the arts become so important as well. You know, We need people who can allow us to imagine better futures. And that is where we can break out of those dogmatic hierarchies of, you know, one single leader as a sovereign can lead the future. It's, you know, what we need is a conversation, not single leaders. It's incredible. Because I suppose this is able to be achieved because true power has become masked. Like you said earlier, the return to nationalism is an unconscious reaction to the forces of globalisation as experienced and with the global potency of transnational corporations. That The only solution seems to be patriotism, a step backwards to nationhood. But can the forces of conservatism deliver a truly different society now like us lot we could all sort of sit around in a circle for ages telling each other how nice we are and that let's have a compassionate kindly world and, and be more sort of sweet and decent but let's consider at least the possibility that there's something that we're missing now we've got uh, hugo rifkind on the phone who writes for the spectator and i'm guessing this is like a pretty straightforward conservative fella are you there hugo Hello, yes, I'm here. Hello, mate. Firstly, thank you very much for coming on this show because you must understand, like, sort of like that you're coming into an environment where, like, uh, like I'm Russell, I'm sort of, uh, like, you know, politically, I mean, there's no one left wing enough on the planet. I think we should uh, disband <laughs> our physical forms and become pure consciousness. Raoul and Francesca, right. they're pretty much uh, intellectual hippies. Dear old Brad, he don't go 10 seconds without quoting Foucault. And, we're, and what yep. we, and what we sort of, well, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I know you're a journalist for The Spectator and you write for sort of what what we would, I suppose, term sort of right-wing publications. What you know, when we're like, we're coming to an election now, what what is it about the Conservative Party, particularly, that makes them a sort of a, a positive thing for Britain going forward? Well, I hope you haven't called the wrong person here. Um, I do write for the Spectator, but I'm very much the kind of I'm probably the most left-wing person who writes for the Spectator, and I'm not a conservative. Oh my god! So if you're so if you're wanting a kind of rousing defence of the Conservative Party, I'm, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really able to do that for you. Um, I mean, I can I can tell you why people support them, but I yeah, can't tell you why it? I do because I don't. You don't support um, them. Do you, who, what, who, I'm not, do you mind saying who, who you vote for or who there, would? There isn't, there isn't a party at the moment I'd particularly like to vote for. I like some aspects of the Lib Dems. I like some aspects of Labour. I like some aspects of the Tories. Mm. Uh, exactly who I'll vote for, I'm not quite sure at this stage. But you wouldn't call yourself a Oh, because for no. why? Well, uh, but I'm because I'm because I'm simply not one. Because I'm not um, I'm not conservative with a big C or a small C. You know, I don't um, I I'm not against change generally. Mm. Uh, I'm not I'm not in favour of a small state. Mm. I'm not in favour of cutting public services. All these basic sort of conservative things. Right. You know, uh, I mean, I mean, some aspects of the conservative project. At the moment, I quite like the idea of there being more private provision in public services. That's fine. You like but, uh, that? But I, the bits I don't like. Bits of that I like. If it works, I don't really mind. Yeah, as long as it works. If it doesn't work, don't do it. Okay, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. Enough. Yeah. But but you but broadly uh, speaking, you're not a person that would come on and and support the conservatives. You just don't, you wouldn't advocate for them. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, not I, Theresa I think there's, May, there's, not the conservatives in general. There's different conversations you can have at the moment about this particular election. This particular election, if you were going to ask me who I want to be Prime Minister at the end of it, I would be a bit unhappy if Jeremy Corbyn was Prime Minister because I don't really think he's up to it. But that's a, that's more of a personality thing than a politics thing. Oh, yeah, thing, see, that's, yeah that's the wrong yeah. way of looking at it, probably. Hold on a minute. Just let Francesca answer that. Oh, no, Raoul. Raoul wants to do this one. Go on, Raoul. Well, I don't know. There's not much to say on that other than uh, surely the criteria for who's going to be prime minister should be politics and policy and not personality. That's a really superficial way to look at politics. Uh, well, no, I mean, because it's, it's very easy to have policies that will do all the nice things in the world. But if you don't think whoever's, whoever's going to be in the job is going to be capable of doing it, 
then there's not much point in voting for them. And I think that's the situation. Well, with, I would with say he's capable of doing it. But even if he wasn't, I'd rather someone, just theoretically, hypothetically, who's um, less competent, but, you know, fighting, going in the right direction than someone who's really competent and wants to take us into World War Three, destroy the environment, cut the welfare and raise inequality. I mean, that surely well, that's that, what that, counts. That, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a slightly decadent position to have, I would say, in that, I mean, like, Jeremy Corbyn can want, he, he can want all the right things to happen, but if he were to tank the economy, then he might want people to have more money, he might, might want more money in public services. Why would you think he would tank the economy? He's got a fully-costed manifesto. If you look at actually who's been terrible on the economy, it's been notorious since 2010. They've had an economically illiterate austerity policy, which has cost the economy over £100 billion, according to one Oxford University study. I'm, I'm, ex- I'm expecting you caught the, be- the bit at the beginning of this conversation where I told you I wasn't a Conservative. Um, I think Jeremy Corbyn has shown himself incapable of running even the Labour Party, even his small bit of the Labour Party. So I, don't, I would not have high hopes from being capable of running the country. I think another analysis would actually be that under incredibly uh, adverse conditions. He's shown remarkable resilience, patience, dignity. And then you add to that the the corporate press and the BBC, who've just been embarrassing, really, in their lack of impartiality and objectivity. And I think it's just unfair to really lay this at the door of one man when this is actually a project to transform society. Um, but anyway, I'm talking a lot. Does anyone else want to jump in? I like in? how Hugo, uh, what I like about you firstly, and I hope you'll come on our show again, is that we can just ring you up on something that you don't really even agree with that much. Go, you're all right, I'll have that <laughs> argument. You must be murder to live with. Are you married? Let's <laughs> <laughs> just have argument on the basis of anything. He, said, he starts out, he doesn't even like the Conservative Party. Well, I'll do an argument if you want. You're like, this is like no, I'm, my I'd, sketch. I'd, you could just ring you up for arguments <laughs> at any time I I take I take a, I, I like to think I take quite a practical a practical approach to politics. I don't like what the Conservative Party are doing. No. Uh, I don't know. I, I particularly don't like what they've been doing since Theresa May came into power. No. Because she's moved the party in a lot. Well, actually, economically, she's almost moved it to the left, but socially, she's certainly moved it to the right. So I like that much less even than I liked it before. But you look at you look at in practical terms about what I'd like to be going on in Britain in six months' time. And this, I mean, I think I think Corbyn would prove to be ineffective almost to a Trump degree. Oh, no. And I can't get excited by that. I know. I know. Listen, Hugo. I think. Uh, I, I firstly, I want to thank you for coming on this show because I think you've shown yourself to be dexterous, able, and, 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 and very, very fluid. Like you've been able to pick up arguments all, all over the show. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, you've been most gracious, and it's a very, very kind thing for you to have done. We're going to wrap this up now. Hugo, will you come on again if we talk to you? If we, uh, if I call and- you up, I'd like you to argue for apartheid next week <laughs> <laughs> on racial basis. Uh, or, or perhaps- that would be tough. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll, we'll think of something. I'll give you a call. We'll do a preparation production call. Hugo, thanks very much for coming on, mate. Anytime. Cheers. Jeez, you're really sweet. Thank Cheers. you. I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I thought he, he's all right, and he, Hugo Rifkin, he's nice. I mean, listen, all right, fair enough. What I felt like then a little bit is that we drifted into that thing where um, you, people talking about politics sounds like that thing where you've got to just talk about politics inside of a beach ball that you can't pretend that there's room for the introduction of different types of ideas. One of the things I was personally offended by was when when um, Boris Johnson said that mutton-headed mugwump thing, I thought, like, you know, I thought, oh, God, it shows you how sort of cruelty, bullying, and the kind of things that would be that would get you to the top at Eton or in government, mm. uh, like when they're applied to sort of normal people, it's sort of it's effective and powerful, and that we've come to regard compassion, uh, consternation, kindness, sweetness as things that are like, oh no, don't you know, don't sweetly consider or think. And like you said, Francesca, and even though it's not supposed to be about personalities, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is a man that's like a committed like politician that's been around his whole life, still campaigns, clearly is a man of principle, found himself in an incredibly difficult position, and is trying to generate actual genuine change. When I think about how things have changed since, like the you know the last election, the Ed Miliband election, where I sort of like, you know, sort of got involved in it. And prior to that, me saying, what's the point in voting? It don't make any difference. Everyone's the same. Now there is a sort of a legitimate, genuine, like election between alternative party parties that are proposing very different visions of Britain. Now, I think a lot of the stuff we talk about still stands, like that, you know, we're not imagining new realms. We're not thinking about devolving power to it to the point where it's as close to communities and individuals as humanly possible. It's difficult to envisage a world where we can tackle head on the power of transnational corporations. But for the first time in a long time, it does seem like an election that has some kind of value, where it does seem like a choice between yeah. compassion and kindness and more of the same. Uh, do you know what I think is weird? I think because 
because we, we've grown up in this system, I think there's a tendency to think it's kind of normal yeah. and all right and legitimate. And I want to say, actually, I think it's anti-life, mm. profoundly destructive. And I think it's very interesting how Corbyn's been treated. Here's a man who's been called extreme left-wing nutty. And he's just proposing more equality, more peace. He's saying, I don't really want to push the red button. <laughs> I'd rather sort it out by talking <laughs> and he's saying we want a kinder more equal society mm. and yet look at what's been thrown at him you know I think that really has exposed how mad the system is it's not Corbyn that's mad it's what's been normalised yes. for us and I also just want to add that you know Every human right we enjoy today has been won by people like Corbyn. And you know what? Every one of them has been attacked relentlessly by the establishment. And we are in the middle of a fight because social progress always takes a fight. And this is that fight. And like Raoul just said to Hugo, it's never going to be easy. You think there's a, another candidate that's going to um, pacify the, the right wing of Labour? It, it ain't going to happen. It's always going to be difficult and messy and tough. And I, for one, think that we all have a duty not to give up and to try and keep hopeful that change can happen. Oh. Oh, Francesca. There she is, your big <laughs> sister, doing rousing speeches. You're right, interesting. Sticking up for you. Sticking up for your book. Ah. Oh. Oh. I, I want to live in a world where our governments are proud to help people and mm. proud to fund the NHS and education and benefits for those in need. I mean, what better way is there to spend our money? Like, I really believe that progress and the human kind of... Um, endeavour and innovation comes from cooperation and equality. And going back to Raoul's book, I think one of the most inspiring things is that his vision of freedom is the power to choose to create a better future. And we all shape that future. And I think a lot of us feel maybe apathetic or helpless. But all of us have a role to play. And so Raoul's book ends on a very inspiring note. And it reminds us that all the good in the world has come from individuals getting together and saying, we can do better. We can do... You know, we can create something better for everybody. Yeah, I mean, just building on that, I would say that we spent a long time talking about the limits of freedom, the limits inherently that come from our human nature, the limits which are imposed on us uh, by a market system, by capitalism, by quite an undemocratic system. Um, but I think the point of looking at limits is to find ways to transcend them. Yes. It's not just like we're all sitting here moaning about it. I think, what's the point of doing that unless you can imagine it being better? And of course, we can imagine it being better. But I think one of the things, one of the reasons to look at limits is it really makes you appreciate the freedom that you do have. I like to think of each choice that we have as a creative act that potentially is concerned ripples into society, which are going to go on and exist far um, beyond our own existence. Um, that, you know, in that sense, and it might be getting, you know, a bit airy-fairy here. But I apologise for we, that in this room. airy-fairy. In that sense, is, you know, every choice is an artistic, creative um, interruption of the course of history. And that we don't always know, you know, who's going to win in, in any given battle, what forces are going to prevail. But I think the duty of every individual is to make sure that we're using our particular choices to serve the values that we are deeply committed to, that we are deeply inspired by. And it's not always easy, but I actually think it makes your life a hell of a lot more meaningful. And that's, I think, probably the thing that all of us 
are most concerned about attaining it is meaning in our lives. And, you know, you might, our, our society tells us what, that what is valuable is power, status, wealth. Um, and you've talked loads about this, Russell, but you, you've had all those things. You've had, you've lived the dream. And, and according to what you say, it, it doesn't make you happy. It's not enough to make you happy. There might be some perks along the way, but we're all looking for something for much more meaningful, deeper. And I think that comes from feeling that our, um, we're using our choices in a useful way, that we have, um, uh, we're part of a community, we're part of something bigger. Um, and when we can find that in our lives, that's what I think freedom is, you know, even in adverse situations. I'll just, I'll just say one thing. There's a, there's a remarkable um, bit of research that Rebecca Solnit has written about in a wonderful book called, um, oh, what's it called? Paradise Built in Hell. And she talks about how in situations of, of, of crisis and disaster, natural disaster, wars, people after the fact often talk about that period in their lives as the high point. So we're talking about when, you know, there's carnage around you, even, you know, people are dying, you know, buildings lying in rubble, floods, this kind of thing. People often say it was a high point in their life because suddenly all the markers of status, which divide us every day of the week, they fall away and you end up with people um, operating on um, on the basis of of need rather than this idea of desert and people coming together in in, in uh, deeply meaningful ways. Um, I find that inspiring. If we can tap into that human potential for empathy, compassion, solidarity, the rest of the time, not just wait until we're you know there's, there's a flood or uh, or a terrible tornado, then there is genuine hope for building something inspiring and, and meaningful. Well done, Raul Martinez. Well done, Martinez's. You've brought a lot of optimism, joy and <laughs> articulate debate, particularly to Hugo Rifkind, a man who couldn't care tuppence, but came on the phone anyway. <laughs> Makes me think he's an absolute darling of a fellow. He, he needs to be on more radio shows and more podcasts. Brad Evans, thank you again for coming. And uh, I, I'd say even in such an exalted company as this, you still managed to bring an air of grace Elan, elegance and intellectualism that the Martinez's may not have bought <laughs> had you not been here. Thanks all of you. You've been listening to me, Russell Brand, under the skin, talking about compassion, altruism, coming together, the ability to imagine new realms, how every choice we make is an opportunity to interrupt normalcy with joy and love and togetherness. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope that Francesca and, Mart- and Raoul have got their Martinez message across to you. And One I- more thing. Go on. Everyone, please go and, Raul, go and buy Raul's book because we haven't got much time left and also Stephen Fry said it was his book of the year but then again he hasn't read mine (laughs) and also you can get it for free off Kindle can't you? That's true until the election yeah Go on, have a free book off Kindle. What are you waiting for? Have you got anything to add, Brad Evans? No, it's been great. And, it's yeah. been nice, isn't it? Yeah, and it's good to... Yeah, what we need is a conversation. I'm going around to Hugo Rifkin's to have one right now. <laughs> I'm just going to bring up stuff for him to agree with. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Russell Brand, Under the Skin. Thank you very much. This show is sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. My next few shows are sold out, but there's still some tickets available for Owlsbury on the 6th of June, Watford, 7th of June, Skegness, 15th of June, and Norwich on the 19th of June. If you want tickets, go to russellbrand.com. If you like this show, review it, give it five stars. Under the skin, look but don't smell.